This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's good to be back on the mic with you. And I just have a little quick story. Uh-oh, here we go. No, it's, it's it's it doesn't have to do with you this time. But oh, okay, I, I, all I right. I was about to be stories. like, "Yo, you just, you just not even <laughs> gonna tell me before we press record." But go ahead, get your story off. Get but your you story know, off. you know, something will happen that's like a five in terms of seriousness or intensity, and you know those people that will always react on like a level ten. Yeah, like I'm kind of one of those people. I think behind the scenes, <laughs> but not publicly. But anyway, go ahead. See, I could definitely see that about you, which is why, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so my wife is also one of those people, Uh-oh. and we we have this little thing going. Listen, back. I just want to stop right here and give you an opportunity to get out of. <laughs> no, this. no, no. It's already. Public. I want to give you. I want to give you a chance to save yourself. She started it and put it out there publicly first. So I'm just following up. Hmm. Uh huh. Look, so I'm really know, trying to help her along, right? So she has this this really big aversion to snakes. And as the loving partner I am, I occasionally send her pictures and videos to try to show her that hey, they're not all that no, bad. Bro. They're no, just animals. Bro. They're they're not a big deal, right? So far she has not appreciated it, but 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 finally this time she just took it way beyond, way beyond the beyond. So I went to Notre Dame as an undergrad, right? So go Irish. Everything that our big rivals are the, is the University of Michigan. I mean, a yep. lot of people hate us, but big rivals. And so she the goes. Wolverines. Yeah, you, you can stop all that. I mean, we can cut all that. So I go. <laughs> hey, I'm not repping them. I'm just telling. I'm just telling the people what's good. That's so they who know they the are. Context. Yes, yes. That's who they are. I'm telling them. I go back on it. I go out on a trip, you know, trying to talk about racial justice, bring healing in the church and do all these things. And I come back and what do I see but a doormat with this big, ugly block letter M on there for the University of Michigan. And she... I say, I, I see the darn doormat before I walk in the house. I'm like, what is this mess? And she can actually hear me all the way in the house. And she just starts <laughs> cackling, just laughing. Oh, and then man. that wasn't it, though. So after I toss that mess in the trash, I go into the office where I record this very podcast. And what do I see but a darn Michigan garden gnome standing right up next to the speakers? Hmm. She took it to a whole other level, man. You can't you see what, what I think, man. I think this is justice. Okay, no, this is what no. we're talking about. This is injustice. This is, ju- this is justice. <laughs> it's retributive justice, and hopefully, it's restorative justice for you, so that you know never to do that again. And I don't know why you send her pictures and videos. Videos is a violation. Look. Pictures is one thing. Videos is a blatant violation of husband wife rules. It's spousal creation care. I just violation. want her not to be afraid. You know, these are just animals, right? So, yeah, Mm -hmm. I just had to get that off my chest. That was just that was a level 10 
And if there was an offense, it was a level five and it's just way beyond the beyond. So obviously you would sympathize with her because you definitely one of those people. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And you know, what's interesting about this is we're going to kind of talk about an issue that's a level 10 in the discussion and the response. So to give people some backstory over the past four or five years, We've been on this journey at The Witness, which was previously the Reformed African-American Network, and also past the mic, a journey toward what I call a joy and justice ethic of theology. So it's kind of like recalibrating and decolonizing our theology to separate it from its Western cultural captivity and its Southern Christian cultural captivity as well. And so from day one of our journey, it seems like there's been another animal, an elephant, and it's the elephant in the room, and that elephant is abortion. It's abortion and the Black community. And so from my earliest years of Christian education, I was taught that many different things were sinful and were deserving of being decried by Christian communities, but that one thing was supremely evil above all else and deserved our full attention and our most energy, and that's the issue of taking life in the womb or abortion. And it was a sense that abortion was the only moral issue that truly mattered in the end. But there was this other concerning intersection of this conversation, which would basically say something like, as soon as we started talking about justice, as soon as we started talking about police brutality, as soon as we started talking about systemic racism and Jim Crow and lynching and the legacy of enslaved Africans on this continent, it seemed like people would press up against us with a whataboutism, as we like to call it. They would press up against us with this idea that, well, the true evil is actually abortion in the modern era. Uh, So much so that there was last year a prominent worship pastor on the West Coast who posted this meme with a noose. And I don't know why he thought this was a good idea, but he posted this meme with a noose and he's a worship pastor at a multi-ethnic church. So a lot of Black people attend his church, follow his um, music and everything. This meme said, we kill, talking about Planned Parenthood, we kill more Black lives in two weeks than the KKK lynched in a century. Goodness. And and I sat back and I said, this is really unhelpful. Why is this the issue that people seem to use to pit against systemic racism? And why is there a whataboutism on the legacy of racial terror and enslaved Africans in our country? Why is this a deal? And so it's been interesting, Jamar, because we haven't really talked about abortion too much. We've done podcasts on it. But as of late, it's been difficult. And I think for two reasons. Um, The first is completely legitimate. And the first is that we're two men talking about medical terms that solely affect women's bodies, right? So we understand that even as we discuss, we need to have this extra layer of humility um, as we define terms and our convictions. But then I think the second is that we also understand that abortion is kind of that one issue where it's, it's a black and white issue, so to speak. There's no other way that you can think rather than on these extreme poles and positions. And so we just anticipated that there would be a backlash and there would likely be a backlash to this episode as well. And we're okay with that because we think that silence and refusing to be clear is actually giving in to the void. It's actually giving in to this kind of Western cultural captivity of all moral issues. So I think we should talk about abortion in the black community. What do you think? It is the third rail issue. It is the one where if you do or say anything that is not even beyond the party line, but looks like it's beyond the party line or not towing it, 
then you're going to be you're going to be shocked. <laughs> um, well, th- I have to ask you because you're the historian. Why is that? Like, what's the history of not our theological convictions per se, but more so the way in which the American church has dealt with abortion? Because I think that's so fascinating and it gives us some helpful contours to understanding why we're in this position and why it's such a contentious issue to talk about. All right. Well, there is a lot to it, but let me give you the sort of sort of cliff notes version. Nah, give us everything. You know what? This is past the mic. They came here for this. They clicked on the title real quick because they said, I know they're not about to talk about this. We got to give them the full, the whole thing, bro. Well, let's think of it in, in, in terms of the political realm, where for many people, particularly Christians of sort of a theologically conservative bent, it is the single issue, the the absolute bar none issue where they will not vote for anyone who's pro-choice. They will only vote for pro-life candidates, even if that candidate is a bigot, misogynist, racist, just hypothetically speaking. Um, <laughs> and you know what's crazy about that is that's not just so we have three branches of government. That's not just a legislative and executive issue, but it's also a judicial issue right, as well. Right. Because you won't support a judge who would be in any way, shape, or form sympathetic to mm. a pro-choice cause. You would deem them someone to be blocked. And in fairness, that's something as well that the liberal side of the political spectrum would say as well that they wouldn't deem anyone who is who could be leaning anti-abortion as as to be worthy of a Supreme Court justice seat, right? That's right. That's right. That's a good point. So the, these debates and questions have a very long history, even just in the political realm. Early on, when it came to Protestant Christians, particularly white Protestant Christians, abortion was seen not as a top-tier issue. As a matter of fact, it was seen as a Catholic issue, uh, something that that people in the Roman Catholic tradition and similar traditions took up, but it wasn't something that was really high on the radar for many white Protestant Christians. Now that starts to change, but what what's so interesting is before it becomes sort of the political priority for the religious right, they had a very different view. And so W.A. Criswell, who was the pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, which was the largest SBC church, Southern Baptist Convention. So we're talking about the largest church in the largest white Protestant denomination. And this is the pastor. And here's what he said in 1971. I have always felt that it was only after a child was born and had a life separate from its mother that it became an individual person. He further explained, it has always therefore seemed to me that what is best for the mother and for the future should be allowed. In other words, Hmm. he was sort of ambivalent about abortion. And if there were circumstances that were difficult for the mother and or child, that it should be permitted. Um, That sounds like a pro-choice position to me. Basically, (laughs) And then there was a poll in 1970 that showed that 70% of Southern Baptist pastors, quote, supported abortion to protect the mental and physical health of the mother. 64% supported abortion in cases of fetal deformity and 71% in cases of rape. Wait, now hang on. So you're telling me that there was this mass support of abortion due to specific circumstances, which again is basically like the the charitable pro-choice position in the 70s, in the 70s among Christian pastors, not just Christians, but Christian pastors? That's right. That's right. And this is important to highlight because there seems like this solid rock of 
agreement on the issue of abortion. But prior to the mid to late 1970s, there wasn't this huge broad consensus on the matter, in at least in relation to Protestants and white Protestants in particular. That doesn't that that starts to change in the late 70s. But what's critical uh, is what really unites white evangelicals politically. We think it's abortion, but originally it was the issue of school desegregation. And it came from a very strange entity. It was the IRS getting involved with schools like Bob Jones University that deliberately discriminated. They banned interracial relationships for decades up until recently, up until probably the mid 2000s, I think, um, is when they officially repudiated the stance. They may have changed the policy before that, but they didn't officially repudiate until much, much later. And it was because they were discriminating based on race that the IRS revoked their tax-exempt status. Certain political operatives and religious leaders got together and said, hey, all of your schools are going to be threatened because at that that point, racial segregation was a, quote, sincerely held religious belief. And so they could say, well, we're being persecuted for our Christian faith, and they banded together Mm -hmm. politically to fight that. And it was only in the late 70s, 78, 79 or so, that you start to get pastors like Chris Well and others preaching a pro-life message very publicly and taking this hardline stance. Hmm. So everything has changed in the way in which we've conceived of it, maybe even the positions, and now it's kind of linked to one particular political party, right? (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah. So <laughs> um, leaked is the foundation. What you mean? Yeah. Like, tell the truth. This right? is critical for folks to understand, right? Like both parties have major issues and flaws when it comes to race, when it comes to economic policy, when it comes to abortion and, and policies and language and attitudes around that. But there's only one party that's setting itself up as the evangelical party or the party of Christians. Like Democrats aren't doing that. They're not foregrounding that as part of their platform or trying to reach out to people based on this religious friendly, this Christian evangelical religious friendly identity. Only the Republicans have attempted to do that. And for the most part on this particular issue is worked among white evangelicals so that, again, like I mentioned before, it becomes for many white evangelicals, the single defining political issue that you can't bend on, you can't, right. you can't think about differently. And, and, and when I say that, I mean that the only goal is overturning Roe v. Wade. Like there's, right. there's, there's almost no other discussion of how to prevent unwanted pregnancies or unexpected pregnancies or how to reduce abortions, it's only overturned Roe v. Wade, which is just a very limited way of thinking about a highly complicated political issue. Hmm. And so it's interesting because as I was growing up, the Christian school method was every time we talked about U.S. history, and we talked about U.S. history in the 20th century, there would almost be this really solemn day that would be given to the period of the 70s. Hmm. So like starting in 1972, there would be like extra prayer and there would be like extra moments of silence, like leading up to the teacher, whoever he or she may be, like sharing with us Roe v. Wade and talking about abortion. And there would often be crying involved. There would often be this like extremely emotional appeal and this emotional presentation, which was interesting, I think, mainly because all of the discussions and lectures around the 60s were kind of passed over very quickly. Like there was no 
there was no sort of um, pause or no sort of emotion as it relates to the assassination of Dr. King or uh, a legacy of Jim Crow and lynching or even the history of enslaved Africans. But it was more so this, we have to be very emotional about abortion. And so what I initially saw was a lot of Christians and even people who I knew who are part of my family, even Black Christians um, who are very influenced by this, this method, this ethic of public witness, who would say, I'd never vote for a president or I'd never vote for any politician who would who would even be soft on abortion, who would even, who'd even be nebulous or vague on abortion. So it put in my mind at a young age, this idea that this was the core issue, that everything else you can skip over. And it's weird to think about that now because it's it's almost as though I was lied to, <laughs> right? It was almost as though I was brainwashed. It was almost as though... I was put almost to uh, pit my own personhood against a very important life issue. And I don't understand why that was the tactic. I mean, I can kind of get it from a power perspective, but what are some things that have bothered you about the abortion conversation? Even as you've heard about it, you've been you know, trained in seminaries and yeah. <laughs> conservative institutions. So what are some things that have bothered you about the abortion conversation? I received similar messages as you just described of where it was just kind of assumed that this issue, again, in a very narrow, politicized sense of overturning Roe v. Wade, in other words, no talk about contraception, no talk about uh, sex education, no talk about poverty and the other issues leading women to feel like and, and families to feel like they can't bring another life into the world. So, so the message I heard was uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, only vote for politicians who take that stance um, and, and do so almost to the exclusion of any other issues, no matter how relevant or salient they may be. And this is bolstered by scripture, of course, and, and obviously we value and, and, and sanct, um, consider life uh, sacred. But when it comes to how to handle that as a nation, as a polity, as, as a citizenry, then we have to approach this conversation with humility and nuance that the complexity requires. Um, what bothers me about that, that conversation is not just how narrow it is, is that, and I'll just put this out there, it seems to me like abortion is the, is the safe evangelical social justice issue. Hmm. Explain that, because <laughs> I think I vibe with you, but explain that. So there's a costliness to pursuing justice. Even see, this is this is how you know it's the case is because you're pausing and you're <laughs> you're taking a deep breath. There's just so much you're to like, unpack. Ah. There, yeah, and there's like there's like layers we're not even yeah, addressing, exactly. and there's layers that we're not even talking about. Which you know, we as men, we should also talk about the misogyny and misogynoir angle yes, as well. But we'll go ahead. definitely talk about that. Um, but abortion as this quote unquote safe evangelical social justice issue for a lot of reasons. Number one, it, abortion may or may not ever personally affect you. Uh, it, obviously, it's a possibility for any family. It's, 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 it's always sort of on the table there. But if your family hasn't gone through it or if you're not a woman, you know, there's only so close that this issue is going to get to you. And so you can speak about it abstractly, you can speak about it philosophically, and never have really encountered it in a personal way that would uh, affect your heart necessarily. The other thing is that it, it's not even financially costly for most people, where uh, 
you can be staunchly pro-life in the in the in the sense of wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade, and perhaps at at, at best you donate money to a cause or a charity that you believe in, but seeing this change occur is not going to force you to change your lifestyle in any significant way, certainly not in terms of material comfort. And so that's a lot easier to get behind than something like, you know, refusing to go to speaking engagements that don't feature women or people of color or uh, talking about reparations and what that might look like in terms of a church or (laughs) a nation and how might, how that might cause us to sacrifice financially. The other thing is this, it's a safe social justice issue because you can sort of publicly posture about this really well. Um, You can post on social media, you can uh, write articles, you can preach sermons, and it's it's really good optics to make you look righteous. Um, But you don't even necessarily have to really mean it because you can talk about all of this stuff and it doesn't have to it can but it doesn't have to require much personal sacrifice and then lastly and i think this is what's most insidious really about any justice issue but particularly about this one is you can sort of publicly posture but secretly support abortion because when it comes to your family or when it's you Hmm. you can say okay this is the best decision for me or my loved one, but keep that secret. And nobody ever right. knows, but then still publicly front. And I just, you will never know the number specifically, but it's not zero. <laughs> um, not that you can't change your mind, having done something once and then later having changed your mind. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who will publicly posture like they're so pro-life hmm. and staunchly for having babies in in basically any situation but then when it actually hits your family and your situation and your network you suddenly take another tack so that bugs me yeah, about the whole that, thing that's interesting i think mainly because it's it's really a critique of individualism like an individualistic look at morality and so when you view morality as solely just the product of individual human choices, you will make decisions and will advocate for positions that don't take into account the systemic reality of morality and of how we think about what we should and shouldn't do and what the government should and shouldn't uh, promote. And so it's it's really difficult for me because it's almost like abortion is seen as this decision that happens in a vacuum and that people who are just bloodthirsty. I mean, the language around abortion is crazy, right? Like it's this idea of being bloodthirsty and they just want to want to kill babies. And I'm like, where does how do we how do we, the ones who desire for people to charitably view us in the public sphere, also look at others uncharitably, even if they disagree with us, even if they would have complete opposite moral views <laughs> than what we have. Yeah. How is it that we're like assuming that because of that they are literally worshiping on altars of false gods? Like that's literally what's happening, and that's all they want. And there's this bloodthirsty desire, and it's a culture of death. And I sat back and I said, "Man, this is really unhelpful." And it also deals with the fact that there are systemic factors at play. So whether it's economics, whether it's healthcare, whether it's opportunity, 
um, the reasons why someone may do this. And of course, we recognize that there are some people who just glory in the procedure itself. But at the same time, we don't think that's the majority of, of how people right. view the issue of that's abortion right. and how people view the procedure and their views on science. There's one different thing that I have to bring up, though, and it's this idea that being pro-life means that you share slanted commentary. Hmm. Here's what I mean by that. <laughs> there was a recent issue that came up in one particular state, and I'm not going to go into it because we'd have to do this long diatribe about what we think and why we don't think this and whatever it may be. But it was it was a recent issue that came up, and I was having a conversation with someone about the bill itself. And they said, well, the bill says this. And they sent me this quote. And I said, where did you get that quote from? And they said, oh, well, it's in the news. I'm like, where? And they shared a pro-life site. So they shared the link. So I go and click the link. And I said, that's commentary. That's Uh. commentary from someone who's kind of peering in and giving their opinion. And it may or may not be true per se, but you thought this was found in the actual bill, right? And they were like, no, well, yeah, I thought it was found in the the actual bill. And wait a minute, it's not. I'm like, no, let's read the bill together. So we read the bill. We had issues with the bill. But at the same time, it wasn't what people said it was, right? Like it wasn't the extreme position that the commentators put in. And some of these pro-life sites and commentary, they're unnecessarily slanted. And so instead of providing uh, the bill's language and then making commentary on it, they basically kind of weave it together to stir up outrage and kind of prey on their followers' passion regarding the issue of abortion. So that's something that for me, it's been difficult to kind of wade through what's rhetoric and what's reality, even on an issue as important as this. So I think just to give due uh, diligence to the complexity of the issue, there are people who are using the language of sort of abortion as a civil right. And when they do that, they they take really strident stances publicly. But again, these aren't always in the laws or the bills. So you're right. We have to separate rhetoric from reality when it comes to this. This is a highly charged issue, right? Like if, if anyone's considering abortion, it's very personal and you have very yeah. strong beliefs and oftentimes ambivalent beliefs about it. And I just think overall, we need to have a deep level of humility about this. Because we can talk, you know, really in strong language when it's just this sort of abstract on paper thought experiment. But when it affects someone who we know, love and care about, then we start to see, well, it's not as cut and dried in every situation as we may presume it to be, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice. And so I think for all of us, that should lend to a humility. So I was listening to this um, hip hop album, which you guys know because he's been on the show before, but... Uh, Show Baraka had this uh, album called The Narrative. And at the end of the album, he has a song that talks about just little things where his his views on life were changed to recognize that they were extremely complex. And so he talked about how thoughts of an abortion um, made me appreciate the sanctity of life, so to speak. And it kind of surprised me because I said, man, Shobaraka is like this Christian rapper and or this, you know, this guy who's been doing in who's been occupying this space, so to speak. And so, you know, also very like fundamentally, like fiercely holding Christian Christian values and kind of this orthodox stance. So it just made me sit back and I said, Well, well where is this coming from? And so 
there was this interview about the song and about the album. And he just basically said, yeah, I mean, my wife and I, we were, we were talking about this. We were considering this just because of the reality of having children with special needs and bringing kids with special needs into the world. And, and we had this conversation and we sat back and we made a decision that was for life. But at the same time, it was a conversation we had and it put it in, it, it removed the abstract idea of, well, this is what someone else should do. And it really put the ball in our yeah. court and said, we have to address what we're doing. And we have to address you know, a very serious reality for the future of our family and whether or not we can give this particular child the life that he or she may deserve. You know, And so it was, just, it was really interesting to hear that um, from him. And it made me sit back and say, that's just another example. Mm. And then obviously pastoring, like when you mm. have proximity with yeah. people, it changes when you, when you, I mean, and this has happened to me, like when you have a 14-year-old young lady who's been, um, who has a child with a 19-year-old young man, <laughs> right? Like, and you have to address the statutory rape angle and you have to address the, well, the family feels such shame because, you know, it's a it's their 14-year-old daughter or niece or granddaughter who's pregnant and so they're having a conversation about abortion. And so when you have that situation, you have to sit down with the people involved and the parties involved and you see the pain and you see the hurt and you see how distraught they are. It, it takes it from the abstract. It's not just a situation that happens in a vacuum, but there are real people involved. I'm you know? very glad you brought that up because we have to personalize it. We've got to talk about the fact that this affects real people and that when we think about being pro-life, we have to think about all the lives involved. And we want to have a bias toward life, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And managing that complexity, and I can just imagine people listening to this episode who are in the midst of that, and what they don't need is someone just sort of hammering them about what you must do. What we first need to do is extend listening and empathy and walk with them, especially in the case of choosing life and knowing that that's not one time decision. <laughs> that's a daily decision right. uh, for the rest of your life. Uh, and that's nothing to take lightly, which is another one of the things that bothers me about the way this discussion has been framed by many people as a racial issue. Yeah, let's let's get into that. Let's get into the to the racially charged. Uh, what did, what did the AP say we shouldn't do anymore? Um, <laughs> Call it racially tinged. <laughs> that's right. That's out. The AP style book said that's out. Call it racist when it's yeah, racist. Yeah, let's get into the racist implications of how the church has talked about abortion. Yeah, so there's there's two levels. There's an ideological level and a political level to this. So on an ideological level, what really frustrates me about the framing of abortion as an issue is that you is that people can use this as a cudgel to pathologize black people, black communities and especially black women. Yep. Absolutely. So what happens is you will have some voices that criticize black women for having children too young or out of wedlock or whatever it might be. And then those talk about this, Jamar, <laughs> talk about this. And Go ahead. Say this again. Cause they need to get the full, they need to get the full <laughs> quote, but talk about this, Jamar. I, oh yes. man. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
So you have some voices who criticize black women for having children too young and out of wedlock. So it's bad if black women have children. And then you have these same voices turn around and demonize those same women for aborting children. It's like you can't win. You have them and you're criticized. You abort babies and you're criticized. And you never actually even get to the core issues underlying that. But in the meantime, you've thrown black women under the bus yet again. Here's what I hear whenever someone says that, whenever someone makes that comparison, whenever someone has that morally inconsistent stance, what I hear is y'all don't love your kids. Like that's Mm. the issue. The issue is you don't care about your kids. Like that's what, that's the fatherlessness thing. That's the abortion thing. That's, um, you got kids standing on the corners. Um, Why aren't y'all going to talk about this? Why don't y'all care about your kids? That's what I hear all the time. It's with parenting. It's with the way we talk to our kids. It's all of it. It's y'all don't care about your own kids. And you know what? That infuriates me because I saw this up close as a teacher and a principal, the way not only biological families, but the whole community cared for kids is breathtaking, right? So some, especially in a high poverty situation, I live in a community that has twice, literally twice the national average of people in poverty. And so folk don't got a lot of money and that's racialized too. It's mostly the black folks in the community who don't have a lot of money and they have children. And when they do, the way the family, the community gathers around like I said, is breathtaking. So it'll be aunts and uncles, it'll be grandmothers and even in great grandparents that actually take kids in and raise them as their own. People talk about like, why don't black more black families adopt and whatnot? They're doing it all the time. It's just not through an adoption agency. We're taking care of <laughs> right. each other's yeah. kids. They don't post it. They don't put, they're not they're posting, not it, on posting it on Facebook. Like they need to get a trophy With or filters. something. It's just, this is somebody in our community who we care about. So there's always going to be room at the table, room in the house. There's always going to be uh, some effort made to care for children. So the fact that some folks who have almost no meaningful interaction with black individuals or black communities are going to stand up and say, in various ways, you don't care about your kids, man, going somewhere. And, and beyond that, I think it's also the idea that they would swoop in and tell us what is more important, black death. Ooh. So like what you really should be focused on is, and this is kind of the root issue of, of the entirety of the conversation as it relates to abortion in the black community, is that there's just kind of this imperialism of morality itself. Wow. So it's like, we need to tell you what is moral. Like we need to teach you what is moral. And that's what they do when they ran about Chicago. That's what they do when they ran about out of wetlock, you know, out of wetlock children. It's funny. I, I think I've told this story on um on the podcast. It was probably years ago though. So I was doing my first racial justice panel. It was in 2014, right after Mike Brown had been shot. Was doing my first racial justice panel, and a lady came up to me. And said, I just really appreciate it. this was during the intermission. So I still had more panel to go. And she came up to me and said, you know, this is just really great. I really appreciate what you're saying. You know, and she's like, and she like stares at me, says, well, why don't you guys talk to black men about having kids? Huh. And I was like, I'm sorry. She was like, you need to tell black men to stop having kids. And I'm like, man, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I was just, I was stunned. Like, I was like, wait, what, what do you say? I just don't feel like nobody says anything. And I'm like, what do you mean? Who is nobody? Who are the people who are not saying anything? 
And it's almost as though it's it's this idea of you guys don't talk about this enough to our liking because what you need to do is you need to pathologize your own community and then that's currency with us. You get currency. Hmm. You're morally courageous when you pathologize your own community. That's what we see. That's the elevation of certain black conservative voices. Certain black conservative voices have to talk negatively about us or about people like us who talk about quote unquote social justice because that's currency for them to advance. And then they get jobs and then they get opportunities and then they can speak alongside some of their best and brightest voices. But it's, it's a rite of passage that if you don't talk about it in a way that encourages black respectability, you're not allowed into the inner circle. So it's currency to pathologize blackness, especially for, and let's just be real here. It is black people in general, but it's almost exclusively in Christian conservative circles, black men. (laughs) So so it's, if we're the ones who do it, if we're the ones who pathologize black women, if we're the ones who erase them, if we're the ones who fail to show care and concern for their individual circumstances or quote unquote soften our stance or have more compassion, then we get the opportunities. Black women just get retweets, but black men get all the money and the opportunities. Wow. So that's a whole nother thing because there's there's a misogynoir element of it that also is tied into it because it it makes black women invisible. Black women will always be invisible to people, to conservative Christian circles who do not care about their personhood. They will always Mm -hmm. be invisible because they will not sit down and listen to them from a stage. They will never do that. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're going to give the opportunities to black men, but they'll pat the black women on the head and say, oh yeah, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you're talking to your people. But that's another layer of misogynoir, even beyond just abortion itself. For those just tuning in, we hope you got all your prerequisite courses in because this is advanced. <laughs> I don't really know. Like it's, uh, it's it's like I think I think I feel like we're just starting the conversation because I we think are. Just so I many, mean, we could. There's so many layers so to many this. Elements. I'm going to add one more, one more, real quickly on the political side, uh, because you will have Christians who are pulling the lever for pro-life candidates and either don't know or don't care about the impact. So what I want to do is read from a brilliant article by a brilliant scholar. Her name is Carrie Lee Merritt. She's written some incredible stuff. Just Google her name. One of my favorite articles from her is about, is called One Continuous Graveyard. It's about Hmm. the origins of the police force. But here's another one. And pardon my language, but it's called Mississippi Goddamn. She published it in Bitter Southerner. And Tyler, can I just read a couple of paragraphs? Man, go, just, go ahead. I, I this is past the mic, man. Come bite. on. Nah, this, this is past the I, mic. This is what we do. This is what we do, bro. Just I just do don't it. think the, the limited soundbite could do it justice. But here she goes. She's talking about um, Mississippi in particular, but but don't just think of the South and don't just think of Mississippi. Think of any sort of uh, any state that sort of rides on the Republican platform as it stands today. She says this. Although women's health care, and especially black women's health care, is in crisis at the national level, given Mississippi's austerity and anti-contraception ethos, the situation in Mississippi is even direr. Throughout the U.S., the CDC reports, black women are at least three to four times more likely to die from childbirth and pregnancy complications, a rate higher than poverty-ridden Mexico. American women are more than twice as likely to die in childbirth 
than, than Saudi Arabian women and three times as likely as British women. Mississippi, deemed by the state's own Jackson Clarion Ledger, is the, the, the newspaper down there, as the most dangerous place in the United States to give birth. The most dangerous place in the United States to give birth has seen maternal mortality rates climb over the last 10 years, and risk differs by race. White women died at a rate of 29.3 for every 100,000 births, while black women died at a catastrophic rate of 54.7. Quote, in Mississippi, the Clarion Ledger reported, pregnant teens and women are more likely to experience a medically unnecessary C-section and an induction of labor, a low birth weight, and preterm baby, and a stillbirth. Their infants have a greater probability of dying in the first year than in any other state in the nation. Mm -hmm. Thus, as if the misery of a state awash in poverty, pain, and suffering, its residents denied health care and often denied a chance at escape, whether from poverty or locale, wasn't enough. Mississippi also has the second highest rates of fetal deaths among all states. And when it comes to black infant mortality, Mississippi has the odious distinction of ranking first. Hmm. Hmm. Ranking first in the deaths of black infants, a fitting designation for a state ruled by people devoid of empathy let alone the most basic tenets of morality. Whew, man, that's heavy. Wow. Now, she wrote this a couple of months ago. Not uh, much longer after that, Mississippi passed a heartbeat bill, uh, which basically says as soon as you can detect a heartbeat, which is typically mm -hmm. around 14 to 16 weeks, uh, that uh, abortion would be would be outlawed, illegal. Right. And um, that's just so interesting in a state that is so pro-life as to pass a bill like this. It has the highest rate of black infant mortality and the second highest rate of fetal deaths overall. And so is it really pro-life is what I'm asking. Yeah. And I think that's been a big thing, you know, as we, as we think about, you know, what's kind of helped us to soften the, the fierceness of our convictions, because I think, both Jamar and I would classify ourselves like in a technical sense, like a moral sense um, of like, what is, if we're, if we're viewing abortion in a vacuum, would we be pro or anti-abortion? And I think both of us would say we're anti-abortion in the vacuum, but we just recognize that there are a number of different reasons why people choose it. And so I think what softened our stance um, and I'll just speak for me, like what softened my, the fierceness of my convictions um, has really been walking alongside people within my own community, um, black women, um, including my own wife, <laughs> who have had pregnancy complications. Like they, mm -hmm. like doctors don't know why black women are higher in rates of, of predisposition to fibroids. Like, like mm -hmm. doctors have no idea, but my wife has a fibroid. <laughs> like, so it's, it creates pregnancy complications. It creates delivery complications. It creates um, this constant conversation that we have to have with her will be to sit down and say, well, well, 
how is it, is it, has it grown? Like what's going to happen? Like, is it impeding the baby? Is it pressing down against the uterus? Um, we had a young lady in our community whose water broke at 21 weeks and her water broke at 21 weeks. And they said, basically like, you know, you're, it's, it's either toxic for you or the baby. It's toxic for either of you guys, if we let you continue, but we need to continue because the baby won't survive. If we give the baby, um, if we deliver the baby now. And so they proposed the idea of abortion and she said, there's no way, um, I'm going to abort my child. And, you know, which was wonderful. It was an ethic of life. Like it was practical convictions. It wasn't a soundbite. It was a real decision for her. But at the same time, her and her husband, you know, they had to endure a difficult pregnancy. Now, praise God, the baby is healthy um, and was born um, and was and is healthy now. But at the same time, like it's it's not abstract. It's not just something that we can say is just a soundbite issue or something that we can lecture about. And other women within our community developing preeclampsia. <laughs> I mean, I mean, just all these little things that if if, if Christians are going to talk about abortion that much, then they should be the number one people talking about the the dangers of pre and postnatal care for Black women and the fact mm. that it's so dangerous for Black women and for Black infants once they are born to actually um, live in safe conditions and to survive. And so, if Christians are going to talk about abortion, talk about abortion all you want, but make sure that that talk about abortion isn't just to lecture one particular community and to assert dominance over them and moral superiority, to say that they don't care about their kids or that they don't have a consistent ethic or to silence them from reckoning with the evils and the legacy of Jim Crow um, and of slavery within the South and within the entirety of the country. So I guess the plea is to be consistent. I guess the plea is maybe we need a different construction of morality, right? Huh. That's deep. Like what's a black Christian construction of morality? I think that's and because that's the question is it people judge your morality based on one issue. Yeah. But don't want to hold themselves to that standard. Because if we judge them on racism, they would they would absolve themselves. <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, so yeah. the standard doesn't work both ways. We acknowledge that, right? So what is the construction of morality itself? And I think it requires us to think about morality outside of just abortion always being the punchline of that. And the mm-hmm. Black Christian mm-hmm. challenge, and this is why I think it's a, a joy and justice ethic of public witness, is the Black Christian challenge is we don't think of morality merely as sets of issues. We don't think of morality merely as sets of positions that we hold and that we cling to. But it's more so an ethic of life that requires a prophetic and a kingdom imagination to see that all people are valuable in the sight of God. It's the beloved community approach, that all people are valuable in the sight of God, and all people are valuable as image bearers of God, but that they're also valuable not in an abstract sense of just being able to survive, but that they're Mm. also valuable in the sense of having full opportunity and access to flourishing as God has intended them to. And it's the flourishing element that gets people in trouble with Marxism or socialism or what have you. And I think that's actually the core of a Black Christian understanding of morality in and of itself, not just holding to positions, but also valuing the flourishing of all people. And if people cannot flourish, you cannot tell me you're morally consistent. If under your morality, people must be suppressed 
and people must be lectured to and at, and people must be marginalized by necessity of the slant of the system, then you can't tell me that your morality is consistent. And that's what I think we're pushing for is this, you know, and and it may be the wrong words to use, just the joint justice ethic of public witness that we will hold to a Christ-centered joy and a Christ-centered range of emotions. Because when we say joy, we don't just mean happiness and we don't just mean laughter, but we mean the freedom to be the freedom to be fully embodied, the the freedom to be fully emotional without the judgment of the white gaze and whiteness. But then also that justice is the through line of everything that we're talking about here. That justice is not just, it's not just God's justice cosmically, but it's also the, the practical justice of those who are the least of these right now, literally, naturally um, on the earth, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so without that construction of morality, that's the difficult part is because people don't want to leave evangelicalism. <laughs> people don't want to leave evangelicalism. Black people don't want to leave evangelicalism in some cases because they don't have an imagination enough to construct a morality outside of the parameters that whiteness gives them. Wow. That's why people cling that's to the even. That's why we're like, well, well, I mean, if you call us evangelical or not, like it is what it is, but we're not repping the label evangelical. And people are shocked because they're like, oh no, no, what now what do we do? As if the only construction of categories that we could possibly cling to was set up by white Christian Americans. And that if, <laughs> if white Christian Americans set up the categories, it must be safe enough enough for us to 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 uphold. Like we must be able to uphold this, right? And I'm like, why are you pressing me? Because is it is it because you're afraid that there's nothing outside of this? <laughs> like, is it not just that, mm. oh, this is moral and this is theologically consistent, or is it like, I can't think of anything outside of this? Like, what would it even look like? What would it mean? Or what, <laughs> or what would it look like not to have the approval of these exactly. folks who've constructed that's, this? That's prophetic. That's kingdom imagination. That's prophetic imagination. Enough to see that there's enough within our own tradition to pull from to where it it may not be the intellectual cognitive categories that have given us orthodox safety that is have given us the the safety and the safety net of thinking that we will always be considered orthodox by the people who are our sharpest critics it may not give us that but it may give us the moral consistency of what the gospel actually demands in the text itself so the moral consistency piece is huge because I think historic Black Christian traditions have had this more holistic view of not only w- what the gospel is, but what flourishing looks like. And so if you take just the fl- Black family, for instance, the Black family is a miracle. In the United States, when you consider mm-hmm. all that was done to break us apart, separate us, and really destroy the Black family. It is a miracle that the Black families are have been and are as strong as they are because you often had families separated from one another during enslavement, um, husbands from wives, parents from children. Often it was the case that, that Black men and women couldn't even get legally married. There were sort of partnerships, common law, not even that, because that would imply some level of rights in society, but nothing that anyone who was white 
necessarily had to recognize black women constantly subjected to sexual assault and sexual abuse and having no recourse in the courts, black men constantly uh, 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 having violence enacted upon their bodies Mm -hmm. in various different ways. And then to show you the resilience of the black family, what happened after emancipation? The first thing people did was look for family. They put ads in the paper. They made announcements in church. They looked for siblings or relatives or friends who had been sold away or they'd been separated from in in some manner. And that was one of the first things that they did. Another one that they did was get married and start having families of their own. And along with that, look for their proverbial 40 acres and a mule. Why? Not so that they could get rich and lord it over people, so that they could take care of their yeah, family. That's joy and justice. So they wouldn't be dependent. <laughs> that's joy and that's justice. Joy and justice. <laughs> that's what it is. Yeah. So, so like, you can miss me with any implication that Black people, we don't care about our children, or that white people care more about Black life than we do, because throughout history, the the efforts that we've had to go to just to maintain family are extraordinary. And the fact that we're still doing it and have done so so successfully speaks to our love and care for Black people in the Black community. Mm -hmm. And the Black family is a miracle. And it speaks to a holistic understanding of the gospel and flourishing that forms an ethic of life that is much more nuanced, particularly when you get to voting, than voting on a single issue. Again, what's what's the sole goal of all this? Is it to be morally pure? Or is it to be morally consistent in loving God and loving neighbor? But is the is it to be morally pure in position? I think that's kind of the standard white evangelical, for lack of a better phrase, stance. Let us be morally pure. Like let us prove that we are morally superior. And by doing that, we will rant against the world and we'll rant against the people who we feel fall outside of orthodoxy. And so we'll drag them on Twitter and we'll make videos about them. And we'll do all this because that is the standard. That is the white evangelical way of proving moral purity and superiority, right? Or is yeah, it to be, think- or is it to be consistent in God's command, which is to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so that, that Christ-centered ethic of gospel love toward God, which includes faithfulness, which includes holiness, which includes sanctification, which includes all that, all that is listed within the scriptures and gives us commands to do, but then also loving our neighbor as ourselves, which would include some sort of self-sacrifice and some sort of consideration of others, not just for our mental superior, our moral, mental, emotional superiority. You have to understand how whiteness works. You do. It still works in Christianity. Like it's still something... You received a um, you received a question at your DC location. I was streaming. You received a question at your DC location, and it was this idea of can white supremacy and Christianity coexist? Like, can they coexist? And it was funny how you kind of answered that question and how some others kind of pressed against that question and the framing and um, even answered it in in certain terms. But when we talk about whiteness, like whiteness and Christianity have coexisted. <laughs> And they are continuing to coexist. And so don't think that every impulse you have is just a morally pure impulse based upon scripture because your convictions couldn't possibly be informed by anything else other than God's holy writ, right? Like, no, it's 
it is, it is a cultural, like you are bringing your cultural biases to the text itself. But again, that's another thing for another time. All that to say, it's been a long episode, but we had to talk about abortion. <laughs> we had to talk about the Black construction of morality. And we hope that this gives maybe some some guidance and some encouragement to maybe our, our, our brothers and sisters who are wrestling in predominantly white Christian spaces and are trying to figure out what does this look like and how do we uh, keep a consistent ethic of life and what is our ethic and how do we adjust it and should we be evangelical and all these deep questions. Um, I don't think we have the answers. I don't think we've even begun to scratch the surface of the conversation, but hopefully this will give you some encouragement to be more consistent to what God has called us to do, which is to love him, love our neighbors as ourselves. That's right. And it's the beginning of a conversation, not the end. And I think if we consider life so important, which we do, then we ought to consider any issues of life with a deep level of humility owing to the complexity and the gravity of the situation. And I think that gives us a different posture, even on the political issue of abortion, uh, whether you land pro-life or pro-choice, this is nothing that we need to undertake with a sense of arrogant pride, or as Tyler said, uh, this this really sense of moral superiority, because it's not about proving ourselves right or in the right over and against other people. It's about loving other people. And you can't do that from a place of arrogant pride. You can only do that from a place of humility and empathy. empathy. So I hope that's some of what you heard today uh, on this very important conversation. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.